All right, open up your Bibles. Second Samuel. We're in chapter 13, but we are going to start back in chapter 12 in a moment. I want to give you a little uh, recap. Second Samuel, uh, chapters uh, 11 and 12, uh, we had a terrible circumstance happen. Uh, Bathsheba. Remember Bathsheba? Beautiful, naked woman sitting on the rooftop of her house. David should have been in battle. He was being a bum. And he sees her and he says, I have to have that woman. David brings her to his chamber, impregnates her, sends her home. She sends a letter back saying, um, I am pregnant. And he freaks. He goes into damage control mode and David uh, ends up at the end of the day having her husband killed in battle and taking Bathsheba to be his wife. Now, God steps back and he observes. About nine months go by, the baby is born, and David thinks he's gotten away with it. Pop quiz, Village Church. If you're God's kid, will he let you get away with secret sin for very long? No. He loves you way too much to let you live in a secret sin and to let that destroy you. So God, at the right time, months after it happened, David thought he is scot-free and doing well. God sends the prophet Nathan. And Nathan comes up to him and he tells him a story. And David thinks it's a true story, and he is going to give advice to Nathan on this story. The story goes like this. David, there is this rich man, and uh, he has tons of sheep. There's a poor man, and the poor man has one, I love this word, little ewe lamb. You know what ewe is? Ewe is a little female lamb. So you get this precious little lamb, and it eats at its table, and it snuggles in its bosom, and it's like you're, imagine your favorite pet that you've ever had in the whole wide world. That's the poor man's little ewe lamb. And uh, this traveler comes into town, and the rich man could take from his own sheep, and he could feed the rich man from his own flock. But he says, no, the rich man goes to the poor man, takes his little ewe lamb, kills the ewe lamb, and feeds it to the traveler. What a terrible human being. And so he tells the story to David, and he says, David, what should we do? And here's David's response. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, here's how David responded. Remember, David thinks this is a true story about a real traveler and a real rich man and a real poor man. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Now, what did David deserve, everybody? Death. What did David get? mercy. Here's what he says, and I want you to pay very close attention. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Say fourfold. Fourfold. This is huge. Because under, under the law, if you steal a sheep, you have to pay back four times what you have stolen. And here's what's going to happen. In the aftermath of this sin, in his discipline, God is going to make David pay back fourfold with his most precious you little lamb. And you know what David's precious lamb is? His children. David is going to lose his newborn baby. David is going to lose his son Amnon. David is going to lose, number three, his son Absalom. And number four, even though Tamar will not die, she will be left destitute her entire life after she was raped and abandoned. David is going to watch all of this happen and unfold before his eyes. And here's what he's going to know. Even the Lord didn't do it. What the Lord did is he held back his restraints. And he just let his children go to their sinful nature as an illustration for every single 
one of us what we are capable of if the Spirit of God does not intervene in our lives. Now, uh, chapters 13 to 20, here's what you need to understand about this portion of Scripture. Um, It is one story. In fact, I'm going to spend one sermon on this. Otherwise, we will literally be the most depressed church for the next two months. Um, I would encourage you, go home and read this section of Scripture like five times. And as you read it, I want you to be reminded of one so important fact. God takes willful disobedience so seriously. And if we sin willfully over and over and will not repent, he will expose and discipline us. Because he's a mean God, because he loves us, and any good dad would discipline their children. So chapters 13 to 20 is one big story. I'm going to focus on chapter 13 because it makes all the points for all the chapters. But here's what you need to know. Chapters 13 to 20 begin the the last 20 years of David's 40-year reign. And these years for David are going to be painful, to say the least. David and his family, I want you to listen to this. They will commit rape, incest, polygamy, betrayal, abandonment, rebellion, and murder. David will bury three sons. David will experience two uprisings or coups, two of which are by his own sons. And what's interesting is, you remember how David has always been the hero? He's always been the good guy? In the book of 2 Samuel, there are no more hero stories of David. The rest of his 20 years, the last 20 years of his reign, is counterpunching and fixing and picking up the pieces and trying to make right what has been made wrong. The Lord pulls back his hand from, of protection against his children, and they go crazy. If you look at your notes, I think of this sort of like uh, five confessions that David would rather keep in-house. These are five things that I think if any of you had to personally say, you would not want to just get up and proclaim these from the rooftops. These are like family secrets, but can secrets stay quiet for very long? Uh-uh. Family secrets always get out. That's the hard part. Even if it's after you die, the secrets always have a way of just getting out. And these are five statements because I want you, here's what I want you to get. These are heavy and these are hard, but I think if David were to get up in some kind of uh, meeting, he would have to say these five things. And I want you to understand the weight of his sin. And and my hope for you, let me just tell you my hope. If I had one goal this morning, it's this, that that those of you in this room who are going to go home and you're going to pursue an inappropriate relationship with somebody that's not your spouse, you're going to mess around with your boyfriend or girlfriend outside of the context of marriage, you're going to steal something, you're going to run back to your porn addiction, you're going to carry on with your drug addiction, whatever that secret is that you have, here's my desire. My desire is that you would go home and that before you commit that thing, you would remember that our God is one who always exposes. And I would love to know that every one of us would be motivated by the love of God. But here's what we know in our low points. Sometimes it's the fear of God that we need to keep us from doing the most ridiculous things. My desire for some of you this morning, because the love of God has not been enough for you to live right before God, that you would grow in your soul a healthy fear of God. Because if he loves you and if you're his son or his daughter, He will expose your sin. And so these are five statements. The first one we actually saw last week, but I'll read it to you so you can um, understand it. My newborn baby died because of me. I don't know anybody who's ever ever been able to say this. Some moms have felt this who have had a miscarriage, but um, for a dad to step back and say, my baby is dead because of something I did. Now that is a weight 
that very few people can bear. But this is just the beginning. I want to start in number two. It says this, my son is a sex addict and a rapist. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Okay, so let's get the characters down. Absalom is whose son? Can you say it? David. Tamar is whose daughter? David. Now Tamar and Absalom have the same mom and the same dad. So there's going to be a unique loyalty that Absalom has toward Tamar, okay? Now when you're the king and you have multiple wives, all right, you're going to have a lot of half-brothers and sisters. Get the point? And now Amnon is David's son but from a different mother. So here's what we, here's what we know, right? The text has already told us that Amnon is in love with his half-sister Tamar. All right, everybody, this is called incest. Good job. This is very good. Did you ever think that you would shout out collectively incest in church, right? That was, that was good. Uh, <clears throat> I never thought I would hear that. Verse 2, and Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a, a virgin. It doesn't just mean that she had never had sex. It means she was not betrothed to any man. She was completely available. In fact, she had this um, tunic on um, that was worn only by virgins, virgins, usually in the king's house. It designated to everybody that she had never had sex with a man before, which in this culture is an enormous, enormous deal. Um, if she had ever had sex with a man, she'd be unmarriable and would be destitute for life, just to give you the weight of the implications uh, of this woman's virginity. It's very important. And so it says that she was a virgin, but it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Are you, ca- are you catching this? Here's a half-brother who looks at his sister, and he is so in love with her that he's actually ill. And what we're going to find out is he goes to bed every night. He stops eating. His friends even start noticing how disheveled he is. And he is just scheming in his brain. How can I get in bed with her? How can I get in bed with her? How can I get in bed with her? Now we had a catch behind the scenes. Here's what's going on, right? That God has removed his hand of protection from David's kids. And they're being given over to their sin. I want you to get a picture. This is what sin looks like when it's unrestrained. It's powerful. And here's um, what happens. Verse 3. But Amnon had a friend. Now, whenever somebody is devious as a deviant as Amnon has a friend, it's probably not going to be good. His name is Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. So this is um, uh, Amnon's cousin. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? I mean, do you see the extent of Amnon's ridiculous affection and love, we'll call it lust for his half-sister. Here's what I know. Dudes, let's just say you have a beautiful godly woman and she's not your half-sister and this is like a cool thing. If any of you start acting like this over a woman, I'm going to say, get it together, okay? Like, you don't need to wake up morning after morning after morning freaking out, but you just get an idea of how overcome this man is with his lust. Verse 4. Jonadab says to Amnon, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. I mean, this is pathetic. Jonadab said to him, I have an idea. Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight. Watch, keep, keep track of those words. In my sight. They're going to come back to us. That I may see it and eat from her hand. Like, does David not know what's going on? He seems to not know what's, what's happening here. 
So verse 6, so Amnon lay down and he pretended to be ill. Oh, Tamar, feed me. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a, a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Number three in your notes, my daughter was raped and abandoned by her brother. Verse 7, then David sent home to Tamar. Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. She took dough and she kneaded it and made cakes. What are these three words? In his sight. And what the author wants you to understand is that Amnon is staring. He's watching. He's lusting. He's perverted. This is grotesque. This is not just incestuous. This is predatorish. This is uh, sex addict-ish. This is to a level that honestly is so disturbing. And she baked the cakes, and she took the pan, and she emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send everyone uh, send out everyone from me. So everybody went out from him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber. Now this is the inner part. This is his bedroom. He's laying down, faking like he's sick. And that I may eat from your hand. Okay, sisters, if you got a brother, he wants to eat from your hand, <laughs> tell him to get a wife or do something different because at some point this gets weird. Uh, but the whole point is this is getting weirder and weirder and weirder and it's going to get more awkward and hard to read because here's what God wants you, the reader, to know. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit removes his restraints and he gives people over to their sin. Verse 11, but when she brought them near to him, he took a hold of her and he said to her, come lie with me, my sister. There is nothing right about that sentence. I mean, this is perversion to a level that is just unthinkable. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. You can't take this back. This is undoable. This would ruin you and me forever. I would be left with nothing. You would be a shame and a mockery of Israel. Uh, Amnon, you're the first in line. When your dad dies, you're the king. What do you, what do you think God's going to do? Is he going to put such a pervert in, in, in the role of king in place of David, the man after God's own heart, the warrior, the king? Like, Amnon, you have no idea what you're about to get into here. Verse 13, she goes on and says, As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please, speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. And at this point, every scholar in the world, uh, rabbi in the world says, she's not actually telling us that David is going to give her to Amnon. She's just desperate and trying to get out of the situation. She will say or do anything to be not near her brother. And she knows her brother's stronger than her. She knows she has no power in the situation. And so this is one of the saddest, I think, just stories. Um, verse 14. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and he lay with her. I want to ask you a question at this point. Who does Amnon remind you of? David. Like father, like son. Wanting the one thing he could not have, Bathsheba. Blinded by lust. Ignored all the consequences. Disregarded God's clear law. Violated a woman. Covered it up. In fact, many people, we talked about last week why some people think that um, David raped Bathsheba. 
And the reason is, is because of what Amnon does to Tamar, that the two are parallels. You can't prove it, but that's where some of the ideas come from. But here's what we do know. We don't know what happened with David and Bathsheba, but we do know what happened with Amnon and Tamar. Now this is, I think, a hard reality for David the parent, and uh, if I could just encourage some of you dads. I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and so I got to watch as uh, teenage boys turned into their dads over and over and over again, some for great good and some for great harm. And there's this little line that I have never forgotten. Of course, it's not 100% true. It's, a, it's like a, a proverb, if you will, but um, it's this, boys imitate, girls internalize. It's that when a little boy sees something that his dad does, he wants to imitate it right away. And yeah, little girls do uh, imitate and boys do internalize, but um, they do it differently. And so when a little girl sees what her dad does, she takes it to heart and it sinks deep down into her soul. It forms who she is in in her innermost being. And what David is now realizing is that his boys are becoming him. And that this imitation is he's raising somebody made in his own image and likeness. And what's interesting, too, is we don't know if Amnon or Absalom, we we have no idea if they knew David in his glory days. These aren't the glory days for David. These are the horrible days. Um, And this is how I think a lot of dads, I've noticed this thing, because I had a passionate relationship with Jesus 15 or 20 years ago that somehow that will protect my children from my present disobedience and my present rebellion against God. And that is not the way it works. In fact, what you're modeling now is what you should anticipate they're going to model later. And we see this with David. All of his sons are modeling the example that he sets for them. And this is why as a dad, uh, man, what you do now matters. And there are far too many men because the busyness of life has taken over their vibrant walk with Jesus. They're relying on their past righteousness, their past relationship with God as a model for the kids now. It doesn't work. You need to be passionate about Jesus now. There's far too much at stake. And this is an example. Matthew Henry, I love this, he said this, righteousness does not run in the blood, but corruption does. And so here's what we do. We model um, and we pray every day that the Holy Spirit would save our children from their sin. Every night when my kids pray, um, we've taught all of this as soon as they could say words, I make every one of my kids, I don't make like I force them, but I teach them how to pray. So every night my oldest daughter prays for my two kids and she says, Jesus, I pray that Avia would trust in you for the forgiveness of her sins. And Jesus, I pray that when Elias grows up, that he would trust in Jesus. And this is what I have each of my kids pray for each other all the time. And it got to a point with Elliot when Avia would pray for her. She would say, Dad, I already do trust in Jesus. Come on, you don't have to pray that anymore. And it got to a point when Avia would say, Dad, I already do trust in Jesus. You don't have to say that anymore. And, and whether their conversion is not as real or not, we'll find out. Time will expose the real heart of them. But now both of my girls are praying for my little boy's salvation. They say, Father, will you save him from his sins? Would you just let him trust in Jesus? That, that is one of the most constant daily prayers that our kids pray for each other um, almost every day. Because here's what we understand. If the Holy Spirit does not grab my children's hearts, they are doomed. They are doomed. And if sin takes control of them, we know what we are capable of when sin is in the driver's seat. And so we pray, Jesus, would you save my kids? Would you save my kids? And, and uh, the Holy Spirit makes new. And even though kids will imitate, without the Holy Spirit, all it is is imitation and behavior modification. The Holy Spirit takes the model of a good dad and he makes it part of their soul and he turns them into Christ-like followers of Jesus. It's not just imitation of a dad, it's transformation into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's where I want my son. I want my son to look at me and say, that's how I live, but I want Jesus 
to not just make him an imitator of me, to transform him into the image of Jesus. Do you see the difference? I can show him what Christ looks like to a point, but I need Jesus to do the work inside of him. And that's what David's kids need. That's what they need. And David, it seems like he's just kind of walking away from the responsibility of being a dad, and we'll see how this plays out. But I want you to listen, listen to verse 15. This is so aggravating. This story just gets more and more ridiculous. Verse 15, then Amnon, he just raped his half-sister. He loved her. He couldn't even sleep. He hated her now with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Doesn't this show you the insanity of sin so that now every time he looks at her, he's reminded of his own guilt and his own shame? There is uh, um, two brothers, one of them, Uday Hussein, the son of uh, Saddam Hussein. And uh, Uday has an incredibly atrocious and terrible record. In fact, um, I knew I wanted to talk about Uday in this sermon, uh, but as I went through the various, various accounts of his debauchery, they were so vile and grotesque and out of line, I couldn't even read 90% of the things that this guy did. But to give you a snapshot, it's interesting what happens when the sons of kings, which is a story told in, in king after king after king, something happens, something happens when leaders have children and, and the leaders do not model and engage their children the, the way they need to. And uh, here's a, a quote. Everybody knew that Uday, a party animal, would help himself to another man's wife whenever he wanted. I mean, if you crossed Uday, you would be dead. You'd be found hung in a, in a body bag or something. Usually just for a night or two if he felt like it, and he would share her with his entourage if he felt like it. Sometimes he took the bride on her wedding night in her gown. Sometimes the groom would be found dead, later a suicide. Sometimes the bride would be found dead, too. There are stories about him that when he would visit college campuses, no one would look him in the eye, because if he caught any woman's eye, he demanded to have sex with them, and they never showed up again. And so when he would come into town, people would keep their heads down, and they would never go near him. And it just shows you the level of corruption that can happen when people are in these influential positions that are not held in check, particularly by authority or better yet, God. The story of Amnon just, it, it goes from generation to generation, the son of king after the son of a king after the son of a king throughout all of history. It's a story told over and over again. So Amnon said to Tamar, get up, Go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this, is wrong in sending me, for, the, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. So here's the deal. Um, Amnon, you have one option or two options. You send me away and leave me destitute, or you take me into your home and you care for me. Because now that you've violated me, you are responsible for taking care of me. And uh, he was not interested because he hated her. And uh, it says at the end, he would not listen to her. Verse 17, he called the young man who served him and said, put, this is, this is actually a powerful word, this woman, this woman, no longer his sister, no longer the woman he loved, no longer Tamar, put this woman, she's an object to him, out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. This is how everybody knew so his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away. And, and this is going to be the beginning for the next seven or eight chapters where you will just watch person after person after person start weeping and crying. Because what is the aftermath of unrepentant, adulterous sin? It is weeping for everybody. And here's what happens. Crying aloud as she went. I mean, I think in a unique way, probably every woman in this room 
can put themselves in her shoes in a very powerful way. I mean, this is one of the most intense stories. I actually thought to myself, should I skip this? Because I don't even know if I can preach something like this. And uh, I want you to notice two things. Number one, Tamar's garments represented her virginity and her identity that had been torn from her and ripped from her. Number two, I want you to just notice the ripple effect of our sin on the generations that come after us. And and I want you to catch this. David is going to find out what goes on. And David's going to step back. He's going to remember the discipline that God was going to release on him. And he's going to say this. This all happened because of what I did. My decision rippled for generations. You think if we could go back to David and he could watch the video of the next 20 years of his life that he would still commit adultery with Bathsheba? I don't think so. Um, I wish that for many of us in this room, the Lord could stop us in this moment, those moments and say, let me just play the video because this is going to be horrible. The damage, the collateral on this is enormous. And I say this because I want every one of us in this room to read this and to remember, if you walk into willful sin, you have no idea the extent of the collateral damage. My prayer for you is that if the love of God will not hold you back from willful sin, that maybe the fear of God will. And then we can get to the love of God and grow that. Number four, my son was brutally murdered by his brother. And her brother Absalom said to her, because he obviously notices her virgin garments are torn, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Basically what he's saying to her is this, I've got this under control. You don't worry about a thing. I got this. Um, remember, they are full brother and sister. So uh, here are the devastating consequences. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Now, I, I have a question. Why didn't David take her in? It's his daughter. When you notice two responses, one is but from David and one is from Absalom. Verse 21, when David heard of these things, he was very angry. And that's it. That's it. That's all. Is that discipline? Is that following the law? Why would David have not entered in when his son rapes his daughter and leaves her desolate? Do you see the moral decay happening in David, the shame that's going on in his soul? At this point, I want you to understand something. Um, We're going to watch. This is the point in the story where David and Absalom part ways, where they are no longer friends, but they become very, very clear enemies. And now you can understand, when, when you read the story and you ask yourself, why does Absalom try to throw his father out of the kingdom and kill him? Do you understand why? Do you see that now? Like there's two sides to every story. David might be the man after God's own heart, uh, but Absalom steps back and says, you know what, David, if you won't execute justice, then I will. Then I will. And David, if you can't be a king who leads with strength and power, then I will take you out and I will be the king. Verse 22, which is the second response from Absalom. But Absalom spoke to Ammon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. He waited for two years at just the right moment, and he waited until Amnon was drunk because he was a party animal, and he had, Absalom had his men um, kill him to death. Kill him to death, that's redundant. Kill him. (laughs) Doubly killed him. Psalm 51 one to four. Remember we read this. This is a reflection on David's sin. So some of you may be sitting here thinking to yourself, this is unfair. How could God even begin 
to do this to David. Well, I want to I make one thing clear, and I want to read this. God didn't do this to David. David didn't even do this to himself. All God did is let Amnon be who Amnon was. All God did is let Absalom be who Absalom was. We need to catch this. God didn't enter in and somehow like force the hand of Amnon to do this because God would never do that. But God does sometimes withhold his restraints to expose the true character of who we really are. So Psalm 51, 1 to 4, David is reflecting on these events and here's what he says. I think you can now understand as a dad, as a husband, if you're watching these events with your children, here's what he says. Have mercy on me, O God. Stop this thing. Relent. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. I don't even want to look at these anymore. I don't want to feel them anymore. I don't want to see them anymore. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, catch these words, and my sin is ever before me. Do you understand that now in a new light? It's not that he just is always aware. It's that the repercussions and the ripple effects of his sin are ever before him. And if David could go back, he would say, I would never, ever do this because it cost me more than I could have ever imagined. And then he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And here's David's evaluation of the judgments of the discipline that God gave him. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David steps back and he says this, whatever lot comes my way, you are blameless and you are just. After his first child died, um, David's response was not, you're terrible, how could you do this to me? Your job in life, God, is to make me happy and preserve my status quo. Your job is my promotion and my safety and my health and the health of all my family. It's not what he said. He didn't shake a fist at God. He went to the temple and he worshiped. That's what he did. So when you, when you undergo the discipline of God, as gut-wrenching as it might be, what is our response? Typically, it's not worship, let's be honest, right? Typically, it's shaking our fist. But God wants to bring us to a point where we step back and say, I am just in everything I do. David, you deserve death, let's be honest. You didn't even deserve to have any of these kids. You deserve for all of this to be done, okay? But what you got is justice. Number five, my son has taken all I have and wants me dead. Absalom's response is that he would start a rebellion against his dad. And um, I want to just read for you from 2 Samuel 12 and then read to you what Absalom does to give you a full understanding of the weight of what's going on here. And uh, the punishment, here's what the Lord says. The Lord says, Behold, I will raise up evil against you. This is uh, 2 Samuel 12, 11. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. We get to 2 Samuel 16. Absalom is starting to take control. And there's this guy named Ahithophel, and he is Bathsheba's grandpa. <laughs> do you think she's fond of David? Or he's fond of David? Probably not. <clears throat> and so Bathsheba's grandpa is now giving David's son advice. And Absalom said to Bathsheba's grandpa, give your counsel, what shall I do? And Hithophel said to Absalom, go into all of your father's concubines, all of his wives, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. I mean, do you feel the weight of this? So I want you to understand something here. That the Bible is not trying to just freak you out. The Bible calls things as they are. 
The Bible tells the story, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And this is actually one of the reasons I love the Bible is because at every single corner, God doesn't mince words. He doesn't make the heroes the real hero. Who's the only hero from beginning to end in all of scripture? It's Jesus. At the end of the day, that's all we have. He's the only hero. Everybody lets us down. But we look at these people, and here's what we say. We say, if I were him, and I had the same sin nature as him, which we do, and the Holy Spirit left me unrestrained, I would be no better. You think you would be because you have the Holy Spirit, because you have some level of conscience or morality or you have some Judeo-Western uh, uh, influence on your life or because God has brought you to a point where you would never even contrive of something like this. But here's the hard, hard reality of Scripture. This is what every one of us are capable of if left unrestrained by God. I want to close with a couple so what's. Um, here's the first one. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, my absolute plea is for you to see a God who loves you and who wants you to come to him, who wants to save you from the devastating consequences of sin. Um, I want you to just hear some of what David's responses are. When Amnon <clears throat> died, here's how he responded. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept, and the king and all of his servants, they wept very bitterly. When Absalom rebelled, it says this, David went up the ascent of Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. He's running for his life, weeping as he's going, and everyone is looking at David and saying, oh my goodness, this man just keeps weeping. When Absalom died, it says this, and the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept, and as he went, he said, oh my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And here's what I want you to get, that the wages of sin is death. It's death now, it's actual physical death later, it's spiritual death, it's eternal death. All sin does is create havoc everywhere. It creates death in every corner of our life. And Jesus comes in and says, there's a way better way. Number one, I can forgive every single one of your sins. I can, I can make your sins as far as the east is from the west. I can adopt you as sons. I can forgive you. I can actually reform you and remake you into the man that you could never be. By my Holy Spirit, I can put the restraints inside of you that you, without them, would just be given over to sin. And every believer in Jesus Christ, as hard as this is, I want you to catch this. We're gonna sing in a minute or two, and we're gonna rejoice. I'm gonna tell you why we're gonna rejoice. Because God has saved you from this. God has saved you from your worst self. God has given you his Holy Spirit. Where would you be if Jesus had never intervened? I guarantee you it would not be here. I guarantee you that. Most of you wouldn't be married, let's be honest. Okay? Most of you would have a lot more enemies. Most of you would have a lot less peace. Um, but here's what I know. I know that if you come to Christ and you repent of your sin, that life awaits you. It awaits you, eternal life and life now. Now, we learn through this also is that just because we repent, does that mean we get rid of the consequences of our sin? No, sometimes the consequences haunt us. And this is why, for those of you who have never done something so big and magnanimous that it haunts you for the rest of your life, I pray that David and his children are a stark reminder to you. Stop now before this thing gets out of control. Expose it before God exposes you. It is way better to come to God and repent than to have, have him force your hand. I want to close. I want to ask the band to come up. And uh, I want to pray. And uh, I know, I know that sometimes these sermons can be weighty, fully aware. 
And uh, what, I want us, what I want to do right now is transition our hearts. Because as hard as it is to read some of this stuff, um, it's in the Bible. God wrote it for our instruction. And whether you're a man or a woman, um, God wants you to hear these things. And so let's pray to God and ask him to do in our hearts what he needs us, what he needs to do. So let's pray. Father, every, in behalf of every son or daughter of Jesus Christ in this room, um, son or daughter of you, we just want to just confess to you that we are truly sinners. Lord, we honestly have no idea where we would be had you not intervened, but thank you that we don't even have to know the answer to that. God, I know that there are some in here who have never trusted in Christ, and um, Lord, it might even be hard for them to see a picture of you where you would pull back and let people do this to themselves, but Lord, I pray um, you would remind each one of us that you didn't do this, they did this. But God, that you are a God who, when we come to you, you save us, you transform us, you preserve us, and so God, I, I pray for every um, non-Christian in this room, every person who's considering to trust in Jesus, that you would um, show them the beauty of the Savior who can forgive and heal, uh, who can cleanse and reform. And God, for every believer in this room, God, I pray right now, as heavy as this might be, you would do one major thing in our hearts. Would you well up gratitude? Would you make us so grateful for who you are and what you've done? Would you make us so grateful that had you not intervened, we would just be left with nothing? Lord, bring to mind by your Holy Spirit maybe the places we could have gone had you not intervened. And I pray that every memory or every idea that comes to mind would just spur us on to greater worship and gratitude for who you are and what you've done for us. And so God, we love you and we pray this in the powerful, beautiful, saving, reforming name of Jesus. Amen? Amen.